Welcome to Dealmaker Diaries, where you hear directly from the dealmakers who you invest with. M&A, real estate syndication, and more. Strap in for unparalleled advice, wisdom, and insight from some of the world's best business minds with Don Thomas and G1C Group. Welcome, investors. We have a great show lined up for you all today. We have Mr. Terry Loy, a dual national of Australia and New Zealand who's lived in Japan for 37 years. He formed his first company on a working holiday visa at the age of 25 in Japan and has established more than 17 companies since then. He's also had eight successful exits, including Link Computer and Hong Kong-based Techman, which sold to EDS in 95, Link Media Web Division sold to China.com of Hong Kong in 2000, Layer 8 Technologies spun out to Theta Music in Japan in 2003, Dijob Software sold to Nico Principal in 2004. Dijob Inc. sold to Human Holdings of Japan in 2005. SBI New Zealand sold to Ally Corporation of Israel in 2008. And finally, BIOS KK, an IT company, sold to co-investors, then on to TMJ KK of Japan in 2013. Terry is currently the founder and CEO of Japan Travel, MetroWorks, and Japan Inc. So strap in as we bring Terry in to hear some of his insights on business and entrepreneurship. Let's go. Hey, Terry, how's it going? Thanks for joining us today. Yes, hey, I'm happy to be with you. <laughs> nice to see you. Nice to see you. Thank you. How have you been? Ah, good. Thank you. <clears throat> Busy. Busy? Yeah, I bet. I bet. All right. So, yeah, why don't we jump right in today? We're, we're glad you took the time to join us and share some of your wisdom on the state of things. So, Terry, you're originally from, um, you're originally from New Zealand, correct? Uh, that's right. Yeah. I was born and raised in New Zealand, and then I immigrated to Japan. Uh, sorry, I immigrated to Australia uh, when I was uh, 19, I think. And then uh, I, I left for Japan when I was 20. I just turned uh, 25. Okay, 25. Okay, and when you got over to Japan, did you... What did you do when you first came over to Japan? What were you doing? Um, <clears throat> well, uh, you know, I, I, I'd been a uh, computer engineer uh, technician before I came to Japan and so I wanted to find some work that was related to computing. That was the year that the IBM PC was released. So I uh, wound up working for a translation company uh, that um, was servicing Hitachi and, and uh, Toshiba and a bunch of other major Japanese companies that were making parts for IBM for these PCs. Oh, I see, I see. So <clears throat> my original work was actually editing. Uh, and then from there, uh, you know, things just started flowing and I eventually went into business uh, for myself about a year after that. Okay. So, so tell me about what, what brought that on, you going into business for yourself. How did that come about? 
Uh, well, you know, I think any um, young foreigner coming to Japan uh, is, before they get to know Japan, the thing that um, strikes them is the differences. And uh, I found that there were many things that were available abroad that weren't available in Japan, uh, particularly in the food area. And so I started looking at importing uh, different foods into Japan. And while I was preparing for that, um, I was approached actually by my previous employer in Australia, which uh, was a, an electronics company with um, a number of different divisions. And uh, they happened to have a defense contract for submarine detectors around the country. And they couldn't get parts, uh, most of which came from Japan. And so um, I started a business to actually going down to Akihabara and buying parts for them. So that was kind of interesting. Ah, uh, okay, okay. And, so, and, and then from there, uh, various other opportunities popped up and I got involved in marketing and then in PC imports. Uh, and actually I made a pretty decent amount of money out of importing PCs uh, from the first factory in China. And actually I was the first PC importer into Japan apart from IBM. So it was them and me. And they used to cost three times more than I did. So I sold a lot of them. And at that age, you're about, you're about 23, 24 at that time? No, I arrived in Japan when I was um, 25, or actually about a month before turning 25. So I guess uh, I would have been about 28, 27, 28 at that, at that point. Okay. And had you always had um, an entrepreneurial bug, would you say, before you got to Japan? Well, um, I, I always uh, tried to make money as a, as a child. Um, my parents uh, were not uh, particularly generous with the pocket money. So uh, during the weekends, I, I would mow lawns. Uh, I used to get up at 4.30 in the morning and deliver newspapers. Um, and uh, we would collect uh, firewood and, and sell it to the neighborhood pensioners. So, uh, yeah, I think I've been hustling for uh, pocket money enough for a living since I was probably maybe six or seven years old. Okay. And just to rewind a little bit, what was your, so you spoke about your childhood. Um, what was your childhood like growing up when you were, when you were a young child? Did you have brothers and sisters? Was your... Yeah, I have one, I have one sister. Uh, my parents divorced when I was about seven. So that left a big impact on all of us. Um, I, uh, I, I wasn't a high performer at school. Uh, I, I guess actually, uh, if I was a child these days, I, I would be given the label ADHD, uh, attention deficit syndrome, because um, I just never found one thing to be enough to keep me interested and occupied. Uh -huh. And of course, as a, as a businessman, that is actually quite useful because it means you can run two or three businesses at the same time. Exactly. So, uh, but as a child, uh, yeah, that wasn't conducive to getting great scores on my, on my exams. Okay, so you weren't such a, a great student then in high school. And... Well, I, I dropped out of high school uh, at uh, 16. Um, so I got my very, the most basic, um, you know, sort of matriculation that you can get in New Zealand at that time, which was called a, a school certificate. Um, and I went and worked in an electronics factory, actually. Um, 
So, yeah, I was the least qualified acceptee on an apprenticeship program that they had. But they decided to take me because actually I, I got lucky on my last exams before I left school. And I did very well in maths. So they, they decided I must have some potential. Okay, very interesting. Right. I think they regretted it after they had me employed there for a year or so. But anyway, <laughs> that certainly got me started. So yeah, why? Why do you say they uh, regretted it? What 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 do you say makes makes you feel that way? I was a noisy apprentice, uh, meaning that if I thought something was unfair, and this was a large factory which was run like Victorian England, um, I would uh, not hesitate to say uh, what I thought. <laughs> and um, yeah, I got I got some uh, uh, friction for that. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I can imagine. All right. All right. So fast forward and you're in Japan and you're about 27 or 28 and you're making a nice amount of money. Um, what, 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 was there one certain situation or instance that made it click for you that this is something you wanted to do all in entrepreneurialism? Is that something, was it something that happened that said, Hey, this is, I want to put all my efforts into building businesses. Um, I, uh, don't really think about being an entrepreneur, to be honest. Um, I do things that I like doing and that I feel passionate about. And because, you know, of my personality, um, always being interested in a multitude of things. Um, I, I decided, uh, certainly after the first business I, and the first successful exit, I decided that I wouldn't try to be like a billionaire or anything like that. Instead, I would live my life starting new businesses and new sectors that I enjoyed. So as a result, um, I've, I've now uh, established uh, 17 companies here in Japan, and um, they all fall within about five or six different silos, all of which are quite different from each other. I guess uh, the common element between all of them is uh, inside and outside. Uh, you know, inside meaning Japanese only and outside means foreigners only. I, I always wanted to connect Japan with the rest of the world. I thought this linkaging or bridging was uh, an important mission in my life. And uh, it was uh, all encompassing. So it was enough to fill the whole life. So... Um, even now, whenever I plan a new business, uh, that, that's my sweet spot, is whether or not I can make an impact in some way, either on Japan or, or using Japan uh, upon the rest of the world. Okay. So, yeah, you, you've, um, you've built more than 17 companies and looks like you've had successful exits in eight or more, correct? I've had some big failures as well. <laughs> So I have the scars, don't worry. <laughs> it's not all success. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure, as, as most successful people have, right? And, um, and you're currently running or founder and CEO of three companies right now that you're currently running right now? Uh, yes, yeah, three active companies. Uh, I have a few more in cold storage. But um, the, the main company is japantravel.com. Uh, which, of course, as the name implies, is a travel-oriented company. Uh, that company basically does uh, marketing and publishing, uh, travel agency, 
services and um, technology services for the inbound travel industry. Uh, as you can imagine, it's a very difficult sector at the moment with COVID. But um, one thing I learned early on in entrepreneurship is uh, the wisdom of diversification. So when I set this company up, uh, I, I set up three quite different divisions. And even though the uh, division that deals directly with customers coming into Japan has, of course, gone to zero from millions of dollars of revenue, uh, the other divisions are actually doing quite well because they're not directly impacted. So that's the travel business. Uh, the second business uh, actually spawned the travel business. Um, it's a um, software development company called MetroWorks. And in MetroWorks, I, um, I, I'd just gone through one of my big failures actually, which was a magazine uh, called Metropolis. Mm -hmm. And uh, in reviewing all of the mistakes that I made and all of the challenges that were against paper publishing, I came up with um, a model for crowdsourced, quality controlled, crowdsourced user-generated content. And uh, it, it, the first iteration of that was actually a dog site. And the second iteration was the Japan travel site. So when I started, you know, it was just an idea. And now we have about 18,000 people writing for the site, about 30,000 members. And um, that makes us the largest producer of inbound travel content for Japan outside of the government. So anyway, so that company is <clears throat> relatively small, but has really good IP. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and we have plans for the future. The third company is something personal. Um, I do consulting work and I help uh, mostly uh, software companies either enter Japan or to fix the problem that they have in Japan. And uh, so I've worked with some pretty famous names, uh, you know, billion dollar software companies, mostly from the USA. And um, some of the problems that I've had to help fix have been also pretty interesting. Of course, they're covered by NDA, but uh, you can ask me uh, some of the challenges that I've seen I've, without directly referring to the companies. Okay, so these are companies that are entering or currently working in the Japanese market, but they're American-based companies that you're referring to. Yes, yeah, some of them are listed. Okay, okay. So yeah, running three different companies, that sounds like quite a lot. So how would you, how would you, can you talk about, describe your typical day? What do you usually do on a typical day? Well, um, I'm not really in the thick of it, uh, to be honest, although I work uh, consistently between uh, 50 and about 80 hours per week. Um, one of the things that I learned early on is that it's very important if you want a successful business to have reliable uh, people working with you who have similar values. And so I always made it a priority to find great people. And 90% uh, of my attention is directed right now to Japan travel. Um, and uh, the people that I have in Japan travel, the senior management team, are all fantastic people. Um, they share my values. Uh, they work hard. They're competent. They're great communicators. Um, in fact, there are a lot of things that I'm not. 
for example, they're good managers. <laughs> and I'm a terrible manager. So, um, you know, they're compensating. Uh, so what I do for the company is stuff that, um, you know, would traditionally be uh, heavy lifting by the CEO, uh, meaning raising money, uh, creating strategic alliances, uh, setting up deals, of course, doing sales, and then taking care of gritty problems that happen inside the company. They might be legal problems or employee problems. If they're day-to-day -day stuff, generally, I, I watch the flow of information, you know, so I'm copied on a lot of emails. But uh, generally speaking, I try to conserve my energy for the areas that will make the biggest difference to the company. Okay, so if you have some listeners who are in the process of um, hiring an employees, how would, um, what kind of process would you recommend they use to find those people who have the same values if, as you do and that can complement them where they are weak? Like you said, you're not a good manager, but you have people who are good managers. Well, how, how do you find those people? What, what, what kind of process is there? Well, it's like dating. Um, you basically don't usually get it right the first time. Uh -huh. So, um, you know, you need to accept that uh, and then just keep trying until you get a person that you think will fit. And even then you might get it wrong, which is why 50% of marriages end in divorce. Mm -hmm. um, but in any case, um, you know, of course, I, I used to run a recruiting company, right? I started a company called diejob.com. I probably interviewed about two and a half thousand people in my career, maybe more. Uh, so you do get a sense after a while of, um, you know, uh, what kind of personality a person has, what their value system is, uh, and be able to ask the right questions. But for somebody who's just getting started, obviously, you wouldn't have that experience. So, you know, I just say, hey, it's like dating. Try your best. Uh, try to see good things in people, but don't uh, let yourself be overwhelmed by those good things. If you see bad things, often the bad things are going to be seriously bad things, if you can see them at the start. So uh, stay clear. Um, I was counseling a friend who is a entrepreneur just even a few days ago. And um, he's a super nice guy. Uh, and that's actually one of his problems is that he, he wants to accept what the other person is saying as being uh, the unvarnished truth. But the fact is that anyone who is applying, especially for a sales job or for a management job, has already learned how to, you know, polish a little. So um, you need to dig a little deeper and you need to be a little bit more uh, skeptical uh, when somebody who uh, looks too good to be true comes along. Uh, that said, there are people who are too good to be true and, uh, you know, chance and fate and, and luck are all part of the business uh, jigsaw puzzle. So, you know, you see somebody and you think, oh, this is too good to be true. Well, you might have got lucky. Uh, what I do, actually, even now, after having interviewed so many people, is that I have a process where I don't uh, alone, myself, hire somebody. Uh, we have a three-person interview process. And um, I, I make sure that uh, the person who's going to hire the person is part of that process and then their boss, one of the directors. Now, if you're a startup, of course, you may not have two other people to turn to. 
So in that case, you need a mentor or an advisor or somebody you trust. And at least there needs to be one other person in that role. So um, I, I guess a point of advice here, you know, in direct response to your question, uh, is that um, if you don't trust your own ability to hire people, you need to find somebody you do trust who can act as your backup. Okay. And then in terms of actually finding people, life will send people to you as long as you hang out your sign out the front of your store. So that means being on the internet, writing, uh, passing opinions, um, helping people. You know, as, as people get to identify you with a particular business or a particular competence, uh, they'll meet somebody who's looking for a job or unhappy in their present job and say, hey, I know somebody who might be interested in talking to you. I would say that every week I get at least one or two referrals. So that's a really great way to find people. Yeah, I've actually found that to be true as well. It seems like once you set your intentions, the universe almost aligns things for you. You don't have to worry about so much about the hows and the whys because those things get put in front of you almost magically once you set your intention and say, I want to do this, and you're active in doing that. Most of the time, those things do, like you say, they'll get in front of you either by referrals or you actively engaging and networking. So, yeah, I definitely have seen that before. So just to, uh, yes, just to push down on something, so say you have hired someone and, and you see they aren't working out or they don't look like the right person. Do you, do you usually cut the cord pretty quickly or do you give it a while to see if things are going to turn around? No, I, I, you know, I'd like to think that I was a fast mover, but I'm not, uh, to be honest. Um, you know, uh, here we are in Japan, at least I'm in Japan, and um, Japanese bilingual staff uh, who come to us generally are inexperienced. Um, they've spent all their energy learning the other language, being English, and they may not actually have any expertise in the primary thing that I want them to do. Um, which may be sales or, or some uh, HR thing or back office or uh, engineering or whatever it might happen to be. So um, if somebody is having trouble, uh, I would like to think that they have the capacity and I didn't make an absolutely incorrect hire and that, in fact, they're struggling for some reason. And so maybe they just need counseling. Uh, so generally speaking, I, I will spend time with a person or make sure that one of the other managers spends time with the person trying to help them over their issues. Um, I had one employee who started off as a salesperson, but it was obvious that he wasn't, uh, he didn't have the right personality. But I did find that he was very, very good at tracking facts and figures, and we needed somebody who was more of a project manager. And so um, I talked to the manager, and then I talked to that employee and suggested that he switch and then become a, a project manager. Now, unfortunately, in the end, he, he didn't work out as a project manager either. But, um, you know, I, I'm just sort of demonstrating that I'm willing to give people a chance. Now, I would say probably two out of three situations, a person will appreciate what you've done for them, try extra hard. And actually may work out and in my case they have worked out but if they don't work out then there is a uh, there is a procedure for letting people go 
Uh, Japan, of course, if you ask a lawyer and say, oh, can I fire somebody? They'll just say, no, you can't, which is not true. You can fire people, but um, you need to do it humanely. And that doesn't mean telling them they're out of the door the same day with their box of things. Of course, if they've done something bad, you may want them to leave the same day. But generally, most people who've been struggling have put in a fairly sincere effort. So it doesn't pay uh, to punish them in front of everybody else and make everyone else feel bad. Uh, instead, um, the procedure is you go through three months uh, cycle. Uh, the first month, you give them a warning. Uh, the second month, you give them a, a second warning. And it, both times, you try and give them remedial work, uh, maybe assign somebody who is skillful to work with them. And then by the third month, if they're still not responding, uh, then uh, basically they get their notice, which is yet another month. So in the end, I might have paid four months uh, to get rid of that person. Mm-hmm. But um, on the other hand, you know, because I've done it humanely, it means that everybody else in the team uh, feels reasonable about what happened. They may not like it, but they wouldn't hate the management because the management is cruel or, you know, um, sort of taking shortcuts. Right, exactly. So, yeah, you've... You spend four months of salary, but you you have morale that's still in place and not. Well, there are some nuance elements. You know, if the person is actively bad, of course, you can let them go immediately and then face the consequences in court. Um, that's one way. And if you don't mind parting with some money, that's a good way to do it. Um, I guess I've been to court maybe four times uh, over non-performance or employee violence, where an employee has been violent to another employee or or to somebody else. Um, and then uh, yet another way is that you can make the water a little hotter each time till the employee wants to ju- jump out, mm-hmm. uh, which may include uh, progressive pay decreases. So generally speaking, a 10% decrease every quarter uh, is legal. And uh, as long as it's directly connected to some logical reason, uh, then eventually that employee will want to leave. So it's really an issue of how badly do you want them out? How badly are they performing? And just, you know, how angry are they at the whole situation? And if you, if you judge it right, you, you'll wind up, most people just say, you know, you're, you're right. I'm not performing well. I don't know why I can't do it, but I just can't. Or, or maybe they've got a parent who's sick and they can't stop thinking about them. But anyway, usually there's a reason. And then um, they leave and, and, you know, everything is good. Um, I, I will say one other thing that some people are genuinely challenged by factors beyond their control. Um, of course, you know, you have moms that have newborns. They've come back to work and and a newborn is having health problems. Um and recently here in Japan, anyone in their 30s and 40s is dealing with aged parents who are probably suffering from dementia. So um, for those people, uh, of course, firing is, is an easy way out, but it's not humane. And they may be really good at what they do. So there are plenty of other opportunities. And one great thing about COVID is that it's made it obvious that people don't need to be in the office, you know, 60 hours, 80 hours a week. They don't. They can, they can work effectively from home. 
and that home can be where their uh, their sick mom or dad is, or, or the child for that matter. If they can't perform as well as they did, okay, fine, then negotiate a part-time salary. Or um, if there's some government uh, subsidy, then apply for the subsidy. I think the employees really need to see that the people managing the company are humane and that they care. And if they do, you, you really get great performance from your Japanese employees and, and from your foreign ones as well. Okay, excellent. All right, so let's switch gears a little bit. And um, so, you, I mean, you mentioned you've had some hits and misses. But when you're, when you're thinking of a new business, how, how do you generate your ideas? How do those come about? Oh, well, my family, it's uh, famous. Uh, I take a long shower. So <laughs> if I've been in the shower for more than half an hour, my wife knows that I'm thinking of a new business. Uh, so, um, <laughs> yeah, that's pretty simple. So it's very random. Um, I, I talk to a lot of would-be entrepreneurs and they say, oh, I've got a new business idea. And I test the power of that business idea by asking them some really basic questions about their level of passion for the idea. Like, for example, does this idea wake you up at night and you want to take notes? Um, does the idea run day after day when you wake up first thing in the morning, you can't wait to get in the office to start working on it? Uh, is the idea strong enough that if you're failing and then you have to start using your credit cards because you don't have any credit left, would you do that? Um, is your faith strong enough that you would go to your parents and ask them for a loan where you've been proudly uh, loan-free all of your adult life and you promised yourself you'd never go into debt? So th there are some tests that allow you to figure out just how passionate you are about this thing. And for all of us, the thing is different at different times of our lives. It's, it's related to who we connect with, what we read what our values are. There's so many different contributing factors. Um, one of the biggest contributing factors or decision points for me is whether that thing will change society and, and be worthwhile. So when I got involved in importing computers into Japan, uh, you know, very few people were using computers and I saw office automation as a key to improving um, efficiency, effectiveness, and, and also income for people. <clears throat> so it was easy for me to double down and just keep pushing and taking risks. And it worked out. The second time I really had that kind of pure uh, thought and, and pure ambition related to benefit of uh, my community was when I started DieJob.com, the recruiting company. And at that time, Recruiting was a dirty business. It was known to be dirty. So nobody in their right mind wanted to be a recruiter unless they had to be. Mm. You know, some of that still exists even today, but it was much, much worse in the 1990s. So I wanted to do something that would allow young Japanese to be free of having to work for the same company for 35 years. I mean, think about it. Young Japanese who are graduating from university they're like, what, 22? They know nothing. You know, they've had a good time for the last four years. They're going to join a company for the next 35 years that might be the worst sweatshop mm, yeah. this side of, you know, um, wherever the worst sweatshops are these days. So 
you know, those people are so unfortunate. You know, they work for a black company and they're stuck. Yeah. Uh, so I thought that it would be really cool if I could introduce a service that allowed them to unstick themselves and have control over their lives. And so an interesting statistic, I, I was the first, by the way, to start um, mid-career recruiting uh, online here in Japan. And uh, I was about a year before a company called N Japan started. So um, at that time, uh, the average Japanese uh, would work for the same company, as I say, for 35 years. Now, I heard about five years ago, the average Japanese under 30 has changed jobs three times. Mm. That's an amazing value change in Japanese society. Yeah, absolutely. Now, I'm, not, I'm not sure that big Japanese companies appreciate that. I'm sure they don't. But, you know, for the individual, it's brought about an incredible level of freedom and self-expression and self-determination. And, and that's, that's a massive change uh, for the whole nation. Now, I didn't do it on my own, but, you know, you always have to have somebody who invents the cheese so that everybody else makes better cheese. Now, of course, there are thousands, tens of thousands of recruiters out there. Uh, the third time that I had this pure channeling, if you like, was uh, for uh, Japan travel. And um, I, as I say, I've always had this thing about wanting to bridge Japan and the rest of the world. And uh, after the earthquake uh, in Tohoku and then the meltdown of the uh, Daiichi, uh, Fukushima Daiichi power plant, I wanted to tell the rest of the world that Japan was not a big radiation blob. You know, okay, yes, we had radiation in certain areas, but the rest of Japan was super amazing. And so um, I got on the phone and email and contacted several hundred friends who are like-minded foreigners living in Japan, said, hey, we've got to get together and we have to rehabilitate Japan's image. Now, that was before there was a Japan travel, I just wanted to do it because it seemed the right thing to do. But as it turns out, um, about a year after we started doing that, uh, Abe got re-elected as the prime minister. And one of the first things he did was to uh, cause the yen to become cheaper. Uh, I hesitate to word devaluation, but it was it had the same effect. The yen got 30% cheaper. And then as a result, um, the travel boom started. And I think that travel boom has grown not only out of cheap yen, but also the fact that there's been this gathering momentum of uh, young people in particular who enjoy anime and manga and, and just the weirdness of Japanese culture, uh, the fun weirdness. And so um, they want to experience it for themselves. So I got lucky. I was in the right place at the right time. And, and that company has done extraordinarily well, at least until March of this year. Mm, yeah. And how, how does the technology work behind um, Japan Travel? Well, to get to Japan Travel, actually, uh, as I said, I, I wanted to um, gather all these people together and get them to write. Uh, I decided to make a, a kind of a, a CMS, you know, like um, WordPress uh, type CMS, but deeper and, and um, have quality control over um, a crowd uh, contributing to it. So we call that product ACQ2, and it's basically a crowd management tool uh, with um, quality control 
mechanisms in it. It works really well. And uh, people get points and rewards for writing. And then they work their way up the pyramid, if you like, up the mountain. And they get uh, paid work. And then eventually um, they get selected as employees. So um, that whole system, it's an ecosystem, essentially. It's been automated and um, systemized. And uh, it's done a fantastic job for us. So internally, I have one person managing about 18,000 contributors. Um, wow. So that's pretty efficient. And how, how did the word get, how did you get the word out about, what was that used through marketing, targeted marketing online, or how did people find out? I mean, to start with, I, I just did it by uh, contacting people one by one. Um, you know, having a, a mission uh, and a call to action can be really powerful if it's a social mission. And in my case, it was a social mission, right? Help Japan to recover from the earthquake. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't that difficult to convince people to get involved. Um, after time passed, it became more involved, more more difficult to uh, make the same appeal. And so um, more recently, uh, we've been changing our messaging uh, so that people understand that the social mission of the company is also changing. And now our messaging is less about rescuing Japan from a catastrophe and uh, more about uh, revitalization and um, helping Japan to maintain its traditions. Okay. All right. So yeah, we've, we've heard about three of your successful ones. So let's talk about maybe one of your misses. What has been, I know you mentioned Metropolis a while back during the interview. What can you talk about what happened with Metropolis? Why was it such a, such a bad mistake or, mishap um yeah well <clears throat> you know i i don't talk much about metropolis to be honest because um there were some legal battles that occurred um which i um had to take the previous owners to court um i i won the uh, legal battle uh actually i won on every single count there were 111 counts but um you know, apart from uh, whatever issues I had with the previous owners, uh, I would say that most of the issues uh, lay with um, Hubri. Uh, we thought that we could take a very well-known brand that was a paper brand. And, and keep in mind, my background wasn't paper. It was actually um, online. I'd been successful with DieJob.com. So I thought that we could take this paper brand and translate it into a digital brand. Um, what I didn't count on was the Lehman shock. Mm. I mean, I, I kind of expected in 2007 that things were kind of bubbly and frothy. I had a ton of money in the bank and um, I knew that it was going to take a year to two years to rehabilitate the magazine and um, put it online and make it successful online. But uh, the timing couldn't have been worse. And in 2008 and 2009, of course, um, was the Lehman meltdown. Uh, the reason it was such a, a huge impact was because most of the spending readers of Metropolis were bankers. And as you well know, uh, there was a huge bloodletting in the banking sector. And the number of foreign banks, the number of employees dropped from about 30,000 people pre-Lehman to about, well, today, maybe three and a half to 5,000 people. Wow. So that's a pretty big drop. So our audience got decimated. Uh, they either got fired 
or sent to Hong Kong or Singapore. Either way, it didn't help us. And um, I, I tried to crash land the magazine. Uh, it took me uh, another two years. And 2010, we started breaking even again at the end of 2010. Then, of course, in March 2011, we had this little thing called the Tohoku uh, earthquake. <laughs> and uh, the month after that earthquake, I don't know if you recall, but there were about 520,000 resident foreigners who fled the country because they were worried that it was going to rain, uh, black rain in Tokyo. Mm. In fact, every night we would watch TV and the commentators would be talking about how to protect yourself from cesium-137, how sticky it is and how it will stick to your umbrella and to your, uh, your uh, wellingtons, your galoshes. Really? So, um, <clears throat> yeah, that was the nail in the coffin for me. Uh, it took me about another year to really deal with that. And in the end, uh, I sold it to one of my shareholders for a nominal amount. And then over the years, uh, it has since been onsold uh, to um, uh, the current owners. So um, I resigned in 2012. Um, unfortunately for me, I, I wound up with um, some severe defamation issues uh, from the former owners in 2013. I think they felt I was sitting on a big pile of money and trying to hide it or something, which wasn't true. But um, in any case, that, that was uh, very difficult because uh, not only had I completely run out of money, uh, but I also had uh, some pretty virulent things said about me online. So it made it very difficult to get started again. But at the same time, uh, this whole Japan travel thing was starting to come together. I decided that, you know what, uh, you just put it behind you, get on with life, and start concentrating on the next thing. So uh, I would say it took me about seven years to dig my way out of the hole. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's not really only over the last two years that I can feel that um, I've become somewhat successful again. So it's been a real roller coaster. Um, I never considered, I, actually at one point I considered whether or not I would go bankrupt, uh, but I, I never really seriously considered going through the procedure because um, I'd had a friend some years earlier who'd gone bankrupt, a Japanese friend, and he was never able to rehabilitate his reputation after that. Nobody would hire him. In fact, he became a famous author talking about how to drive a company into the ground. <laughs> <laughs> so that was a, a good segue, but I'm not sure I want to make money being known as the guy who failed. So uh, I decided to just uh, put my nose back to the grindstone and, and build something new. And uh, eventually time passed, uh, old wounds healed, and uh, the new business uh, took hold, took root, and started growing again. I... Uh, <clears throat> I don't really see it 100% as a failure, to be honest. Um, of course, I failed as a business person, but I learned so much from that. The thing that I learned most is that um, ego isn't worth it. Mm -hmm. uh, you have nothing to prove to other people. Uh, you know, I went through a period where I wanted to be the richest or the most successful or whatever. But I came out of that feeling very humble. I'm very grateful to the people around me who helped me out. And there were many people who helped me out, especially my initial shareholders. 
So um, I continually remind myself of that period to make sure that I don't get too cocky or, you know, get too, uh, um, you know, too full of myself. I want to make sure that I remember to stay humble, stay thankful, and, uh, you know, uh, keep building, keep on with it. Yeah, definitely a valuable lesson. And just real quick, not to beat a dead horse, but for the listeners who don't know what Metropolis is, what kind of magazine is Metropolis? Uh, Metropolis is, um, was, uh, well, it still is, it's still around, but it's uh, Japan's um, largest uh, free paper uh, in English. And um, it's a community newspaper. Uh, it started off as a classified uh, newspaper. Actually, I was involved in financing it originally. And then um, it sort of morphed and uh, evolved into uh, community arts and, and events uh, publication, which it pretty much is today. Mm-hmm. Um, it's kind of like a timeout, I guess, but I wouldn't call it a timeout because it's, it, it's less about gloss and more about substance. Um, so it's, it's a kind of a gritty uh, community newspaper. I think it's really needed. Um, I, I feel sorry to know that, uh, well, first of all, that I couldn't do a good job about it. And then secondly, you know, there, there's so many less people now than there were. And, um, you know, the transition uh, really has to happen from paper to online. Uh, the great thing about paper is it's right in front of you. You know, it's a great intermediator. It really gets attention. I do see a role for paper, but it's really hard to make paper pay, especially at the moment. Maybe that'll change in the coming years, but right at the moment, it's difficult. Okay. And so, Tara, let's talk about, um, I want to back up. So you have a lot of people looking at, they're just starting out running their companies, and they have to wear so many different hats. What, what would you suggest or recommend that they invest most of their time in when they're just starting to run their businesses? Um, the hardest job in any company um, is probably sales, uh, especially when you're getting started because you've got so many factors against you. I would say that most founders would do the best job as a salesperson. Of course, there are some people who do not have a salesperson personality and instead are amazing technologists or designers or something like that. Uh, while you can make a company being the technologist or the designer, you have to hire somebody who can handle the sales. And that pretty much means that you're going to have to pay somebody uh, an equivalent amount of money or give them an equivalent amount of stock to be able to get the company started, which means giving away a lot at the beginning. So if you're the kind of person that feels that that's your gig, okay, fine. Uh, then, you know, by all means, give up uh, a significant amount of ownership and bring somebody in. But the thing is, you don't know whether or not they're going to be any good until a year or two years goes by. And furthermore, you're still developing the product as well, probably. So maybe the sales are being hindered not only by the person and the market, but also by the product. So it's a kind of a big risk, if you ask me. So I think the best person to start a company is somebody with a either a sales mentality or the ability to pretend to have a sales mentality. Both are good. I'm not a born salesman. 
but I, I'm good at pretending to be a salesman. I force myself to do it. I force myself to be friendly and to, you know, do all the things that you should do as a salesperson and somehow it works. Can those, um, if you don't have those skills, can those skills be developed? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, the best, the best salespeople of course have something great to sell. So, you know, um, I guess in the life cycle of starting a company, the, the first thing that you need is something that is great. Uh, it's the best, the biggest, the newest, uh, the most amazing, has a patent, uh, has a trademark, something uh, that allows you to go out and create attention. If you have that, if you have a thing that will sell itself, then you don't need to be a fantastic salesperson to do well. On the other hand, if you're just running a regular service, like, I don't know, you're an advertising company and there's so many of them out there, then you'd have better have a really kick-ass salesperson to get started. So it's a function of what you start with as to where your resources go and, and you know, how you uh, spend your time as a CEO or as a founder. Okay. All right, so this next question, I'm not sure if you'd want to answer it, but which one of your exits or earnouts was most successful? Um, that's a really hard question to answer. Uh, socially, I would say that diejob.com was the most successful mm -hmm. because as I said, it, it caused the demographic revolution and in, in the way people take jobs. In terms of ex-employees and where they've gone since, and just like all around amazing team and amazing opportunity, uh, probably Link Computer, my IT company, was the most successful. It certainly grew the fastest out of the, all the companies that I've had. Okay. And how about in terms of return on investment for your investors? Well, I always started from zero, so their return on investment is, <laughs> is unlimited, isn't it? Um, I would guess uh, Japan Travel, the current one, uh, will probably wind up having the best return because I kind of know what I'm doing now. And also we plan to go public with the company once travel comes back. Okay. Yeah. And you started Japan, you, in, you incorporated, you said in 2011, was it? Did you incorporate? Japan Travel? Yeah. I started the company in uh, November 29th, 2013. Okay. And prior to that, I ran the community, which was actually called Japan Tourist. So um, I ran this community and built it over a two-year period. Okay. All right. And what's one change someone should make to help them get closer to their to their goal or their success? What would you What would you say was one change anyone should make? Well, surely it depends on the person. Everyone has a set of attributes uh, which are strong and weak. Um, it's, you know, I think you would have to give me an example uh, for me to be able to answer it. Um, I, uh, as I say, I, I spent time with a colleague uh, a few days ago who is a super nice person. And the one change I told him is that he needs somebody to advise him. He needs uh, somebody to backstop him, to help him make better decisions. You know, so it's a matter of diagnosing the situation. This is why mentors are really good because mentors have experience 
And although they can be a bit cruel in what they say, because they tend to be quite honest, especially if they're successful business people, um, they will diagnose what they see as being the problem very quickly. Now, if you don't like that diagnostic, go and ask another mentor. And if you get two people saying the same thing as this guy did, then you know you can be pretty sure that uh, that's something you have to change. Absolutely. Yeah. So I mean, you've been in you've been doing this for going on four decades now. What's the yeah, 36, 36 years? Yeah, <laughs> I'm not counting. <laughs> <laughs> so, what's the most difficult decision you've ever had to make? Do you think up to this point? Uh, most difficult decision. Well, certainly the most difficult decision at the beginning was going to my mother and asking for a loan when I uh, got caught in a uh, kind of a debt trap. Um, I was selling a huge number of computers and then suddenly there was a flaw in Intel microprocessors. And what I'd been doing is financing the company on receivables. So the customers would pay me a few weeks before I had to pay the vendors, the suppliers. But because of this uh, chip flaw, uh, there was a three to four month uh, delay in shipment of PCs. So my very successful company suddenly owed half a million dollars. I had to raise half a million dollars in about four weeks. Keeping in mind, I could barely pay my own salary because the company was growing so quickly it absorbed all the cash flow. So um, I had to really bite my pride and uh, go talk to some very close friends and just tell them what was going on. Now, they all thought I had a great problem, right? Yeah. Oh, you're so successful, you need money because this thing happened? Okay, sure, we'll help you out. But it was a big decision to go and um, you know, see them. I had to really step down off my ego platform to do that. Yeah, and I, I mean, I would think though, yeah, I mean, with that situation, you know the money's coming in, it's just, it's just that waiting period, so. I think it's yeah, but you know, if I didn't have the money, I couldn't pay the supplies. They're going to cut me off. Right. So um, actually what happened is that uh, we got very close to the line. I was still trying to negotiate to get these um, two or three people to lend me the money. And one of the suppliers said, well, it looks like you're not going to be able to pay us. So we're just not going to give you any more machines. And we were ordering like hundreds of PCs a month. So that was a disaster. And then to my amazement, about three days later, I got a call from their biggest competitor. At this time, uh, there were two computer companies. One was called AST, which is uh, a, a Taiwanese company, part of Acer. And um, the other company was Compaq, uh, which of course now is part of HP. So uh, Compaq called me up and said, oh, we understand that you're the biggest reseller of AST in Japan. We'd like you to switch to Compaq. And so I said to them, well, are you, can you give me a three-month uh, credit line? They said, yes, of course. How many PCs do you want? <laughs> so, uh, of course, I did pay off AST, but uh, nonetheless, I went from out of the frying pan into the, um, into the river, <laughs> basically. Uh, and, and that just put the company on a whole different level. And so suddenly we were selling like uh, hundreds of compact uh, servers and and PCs, which actually gave us a huge uh, increase in, in uh, business. 
So you never know, you know, what the universe is going to send to you. Uh, you don't count. You don't count your last minutes until you know it's well and truly over, because you, at the last minute something might happen that, that actually works for you. And who ended up being the better supplier? Was it HP or AST or Compaq? Which who was the better supplier in your experience working with both of those? Um, as far as business, they were, they were both fine. Uh, you know, they they both made good machines. I, I personally preferred the AST machines and the AST staff, but their credit people were really harsh. On the other hand, the HP uh, people, their machines were not 100% reliable at that point. They got better as they went along. Uh, but, the, you know, the credit guys were very willing. And, and you know, we were dealing with major banks. So uh, HP, more uh, well, at that time, uh, Compact, they were very focused on the customer. Not, not on us necessarily, which is extremely helpful to a startup like us. So which was the better company? Well, I guess Compaq in terms of business, but AST in terms of, you know, overall relationship. Okay, are they still around AST? I don't know. I, I believe that they may be. Uh, I haven't followed them in the last few years. Okay, yeah, I've actually never, I don't think I've even heard of them, AST, mm. yeah. They're either Taiwanese. Oh, this is going back a few years now. <laughs> <laughs> All right, very good. All right, so why don't we do our, my lightning round now? Okay. So if you could have one advertisement on a billboard anywhere with anything on it, what would it say? I wouldn't. I, I don't. Right now, I don't believe in physical media. No physical media. Okay. All right, and what's a strange habit or a peculiar routine that you have? <laughs> um, <laughs> strange habit. Well, I don't know if it's strange, but I, I make sourdough bread using uh, sakekasu. As far as I know, I'm the only person in the world doing that. Sakekasu, what is that? Sakekasu is the enzymes, uh, enzyme-rich leftovers, the lees, when you make sake. When you press the rice and the juice comes out, that's the sake. What's left over is this rich bed of enzymes, which is kind of a health product. Um, I found out that it's um, loaded with uh, lacto-friendly uh, uh, bacteria, and I use it in my fermentation process for my sourdough. It makes a huge difference to the taste and the quality of the dough. So um, I, I'm a pretty good sourdough baker, actually. Um, I have friends who are cooks and you know professional chefs and and uh, and food uh, own, company owners who hang out for my bread. So um, yeah, that's the <laughs> that's what I do. That's a bit different. Okay, I'm going to have to put in a request for a piece of that from you and check that out. Does it, <laughs> does it have any health benefits or? Oh, incredible! Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, it's uh, really good for your um, gut biome. Okay. Uh, you know, they're saying now that the the condition of your gut uh, directly affects your likelihood to get Alzheimer's later. And um, so, you know, if you've got a good gut biome, uh, you're less likely to get Alzheimer's. Uh, it's still a new area of research, but there are some papers that have come out in the last year that suggest this is the case. So um, apart from that, um, 
sourdough itself is uh, rich in um, in B group vitamins. And you know, when those cowboys were out in the prairie in the US making their San Francisco sourdough mm-hmm. uh, bread, uh, what they didn't realize is that that was their only source of B group vitamins. So they were preventing scurvy and beriberi and a whole bunch of other diseases that Asia had, but the uh, Westerners in um, the US and the new territories didn't because they were eating the sourdough. Uh, another thing is that sourdough predigests the proteins um, and uh, gluten uh, lattice inside the bread, uh, which means that um, it's easier to di- digest. And if you're somewhat uh, gluten intolerant, you can probably eat sourdough where you can't eat, re- eat regular bread. Okay. So yeah, there are, there are a bunch of good things about sourdough. All right. So yeah, I'll be putting in an order with you soon. <laughs> Well, I'll tell you something. Um, I, I practice this thing called sourdough diplomacy. So most Japanese never tasted real sourdough. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's hard to get. And, and mm-hmm. you know, most people are happy with that white fluffy stuff yeah. that, that I certainly wouldn't call bread. But anyway, um, about two or three years ago, it became illegal to give gifts to clients uh, because of the uh, bribery um, regulations that came in. So you can't give anything of value to a customer. But handmade things don't have value per se. I mean, it's just the cost of a bit of flour and salt. So um, what I've been doing over the last two or three years is giving away chunks, you know, a half or a quarter or a whole bowl of um, sourdough bread uh, to my Japanese customers. And so the word gets around, you know, because when you give a a loaf of bread to a customer at an office, you know, they, they don't take it home, right? Yeah. They cut it up into like 24 or 30 slices and everyone gets a little slice. So then the whole office starts talking about the sourdough bread and this foreigner who, who, who bought it in. So when I go back into that office, yeah, people say, oh, loido-san, loido-san, sourdough, iskata, arigato. You know, it's amazing. So um, I, that sourdough is doing my sales job for me. I'm not a good salesperson personally, but who needs it when you've got a great product? Yeah, it speaks for itself. It speaks for itself. And they're eating it. So it's kind of like, you know, um, yeah, you couldn't get more personal than that, could you? <laughs> yeah, you're right. You never see that in the supermarkets. I mean, it's hard to get sourdough or even wheat bread or whole grain bread. It's mostly the white, like you said, the big, white, fluffy, fluffy bread. And this actually speaks to a tip that I give all my new salespeople you know, because most salespeople, you, you were saying, can they learn how to do sales? They can learn, but I tell them the best way to do sales is to be good at something. It doesn't matter what it is. It may not be anything to do with your work, but as long as you're good at one thing, you know all about it, and you can tell a good story about it, your customer will want to see you even just for entertainment value. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I mean, like, uh, obviously I don't need it now, but if I was just getting started and I was really good at sourdough, then that would be my thing, you know? I'd take the sourdough in and start talking about that, even though I'm trying to sell advertising for my inbound travel website. Probably that customer wants to see me again just to get another slice. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's interesting because that goes, I, was, I can't remember the name of the book, but I was reading a few weeks ago, it was a business book, but it talks about yeah, if you can tell a story, it just increases your ability to sell 
two, three, fourfold because, like you said, just for the entertainment value, if you can tell a tell a story, you can sell. It's exponential. You know, it's entertainment value, but it also speaks to your values as a person. So although you may be very humble or you may be very shy and you don't want to say anything about yourself, the fact that you know everything about sourdough and sourdough is good for you tells you that that person cares about the physical health of themselves, the people that they're giving it to. Um, in my case, I like a whole wheat. Uh, so that talks about going back to nature. And then, of course, I'm combining sakikasu, which means that I love Japanese tradition. And so that qualifies me to be somebody who's friendly to Japan. So those stories really tell a lot more about you and your values as a person than you possi could possibly think. If you've got a great story, the other person will build a picture, not just a view, but this kind of aura of facts and figures and combinations around you, which make you bigger than you really are. Yeah, and I guess that's why they say the best politicians are great storytellers. The politicians who get the most done because they can tell the best stories. Well, so the best business people. I mean, the person who's got the most inflated stock price in the world at the moment is a guy called Elon Musk. Yeah. And that guy knows how to tell a story. Yeah, he definitely does. Yeah. And that hurt that he's smart as all in as well. But yeah, he can tell a story. Very interesting guy. Well, there's two types of smarts, right? There's IQ and EQ. And, um, you know, my IQ is just average, but my EQ is probably above average, thanks to storytelling. Okay, yeah, very good. All right, so what are, what are bad recommendations you hear in your day-to-day -day in your industry? Bad recommendations? How do you mean? Like bad recommendations to entrepreneurs or bad recommendations to travelers? Entrepreneurs or to invest in, what are some of the bad recommendations you hear? Hmm. Well, one thing that I talk to entrepreneurs a lot about is um, being single focused versus being diversified. So most funds, most VCs want to see a single focused company. And they want you to fail quickly. Now, all that good stuff may work in the USA. But if you fail quickly in Japan, nobody will give you a second chance. Yeah, yeah. So it's really bad advice to listen to what works in the States and expect that it'll work here in Japan. That's my personal opinion. So I always tell entrepreneurs who are in Japan, and not just Japan, throughout Asia in general, with the possible exception of, of maybe Singapore, because Singapore does have a ecosystem somewhat similar to the US. But everywhere else, including places like Australia, um, survival of the fittest, is still the name of the game. And so therefore my advice, which is contrarian advice, is make sure you've got a second string to your bow. Make sure you have some diversification in case the worst thing happens and you, your main business gets cut down <clears throat> or fails, you know, because maybe the product failed. Okay, and that's the perfect segue to my next question. So what advice would you give to a smart driven investor, say passive investor, who's interested in investing with someone who's raising capital for, for a venture or for their company? Uh, a friend of mine once told me that uh, his motto for investing was bet on the jockey, not the horse. Mm -hmm. 
So um, I, I guess my first word of advice to an investor would be look at the people you're investing in mm -hmm. and ask yourself, are these people that you would want in your family? Because they may become family if things don't go well. <laughs> okay, yeah. So, um, you know, once you have decided that you like the person, then by all means, of course, look at the product. Um, it helps if you know the product uh, segment that you're investing in. So people who know uh, their space are able to make more intelligent decisions. Mm -hmm. I'll tell you a story directly to, to this. Uh, in 2008, I invested in a artificial intelligence company uh, in New Zealand called uh, Svion. And um, that company uh, had a really radically bleeding edge technology uh, based on neural network AI. Neural network AI has really only come into its own in the last five years. So these guys were way ahead yes. of uh, normal time. And what they did is they detected DDoS attacks. And um, the company was going to be sold uh, to an Israeli firm, whose name I won't mention. And um, I was the only person who actually had a background in uh, security and network security. So I actually visited the CEO of that particular Israeli company here in Japan, even though it's a New Zealand company doing the sale. And I, I asked him what his parent company was like and whether they could be trusted. I got a very ugly response. And so when that company made their offer, they, they gave two offers. One is get out now for a low price or stay in and get a higher price. I took the low price and got out straight away. And you know what? Uh, no one who stayed in for the higher price got anything back on their investment. Really? Wow. So um, it really helps as an investor to know the industry well enough to be able to do some research on your own. Okay. So yeah, and like you said, um, betting on the jockeys, and, and say you're looking at a company with only one person managing the whole company versus someone with a team around them. So say, say it's just me with my company and then you have the exact same company, it's me and I have some people who with, with a great track record in the industry, which one would you be more prone to invest with? Which one is more attractive to an investor in your opinion? No, I think every investor has their own metrics, right? Uh, some investors want safety and security, other ones want uh, a rocket ride um, and don't mind taking risk. Uh, in terms of looking at the jockey, uh, well, you're, there's really only one jockey generally, which is the person with the most shares. Mm -hmm. So if it's a one person uh, company, then it's a pretty easy decision. There are some companies, of course, that have partners. I, generally speaking, I find partner driven companies don't work very well. Um, sooner or later, one of the partners loses interest. The other one feels bad because they're doing most of the work. And so they devolve into arguments and fights. In fact, I would have to say that in Japan, I've probably only ever seen one company that succeed, succeeded uh, to right through to earnout uh, with an equal partnership. So another piece of advice that I give CEOs, uh, founders, is uh, you might be tempted to give your uh, partner a decent chunk of shares, but make sure that you have clear control of the business. Mm -hmm. 
So generally speaking, the, the most shares that I would give to a second, uh, second person uh, wouldn't be more than 30%. 30% or 13, you said? 30, three, three zero. Three zero, okay. Yes, uh, why? Because, um, well, most G7 countries, and uh, you know, most G7 countries, uh, they have a uh, minority majority um, uh, corporate code, you know, like the commercial law. And um, there's an actual material number uh, which speaks to whether you uh, have control or have veto capability. So usually it's one third and two thirds. So if you're under one third, you can't veto the board uh, by you know calling a, a general meeting, for example. On the other hand, if you have more than two thirds, generally you can carry a, a motion without being vetoed. Okay. So one third, two thirds are kind of like important numbers. Okay, got it. And if you're a one person company, just quick question, and you give somebody that 30%, are you able to hold the other two-thirds of the company? So say you have, you give that person 30% or one board seat. Can one person hold the other two board seats? Um, no, generally not. Uh, but uh, you can always just ask your wife to be the third director. Okay. Right. I mean, um, usually the way it works is that director are elected in proportion to the share, shares held. And if you've got a lot of small shareholders, then obviously that doesn't work so well. But most companies, there's two or three strong shareholders and then a bunch of smaller ones. So most companies will start with one director to start with and then quickly move to three. Um, I, I'm just uh, in the process of um, helping a company at the moment that will have two directors for a short time. That's a terrible number because it means you never have a majority vote. Mm. You always have a split vote. So, you know, directors logically should go one, three, five, seven, and so on, odd numbers. Okay. But the reason why I'm doing that uh, is um, because I know the other fellow really, really well. And um, anyway, within a year, we will have three directors on the board. We, we will do another funding. Okay, got it. All right, and in the last five years, Terry, what have you become better at saying no to? Um, nothing. <laughs> you still say yes to everything? I know that. No, I don't say yes to everything, but I, I have this um, philosophy of being open to the universe, you know? Uh, there are a lot of people who are very protective about their time, uh, their social space, and that kind of thing. And in the end, they they say no to most things that people ask them. Like you asked me to be interviewed for this uh, podcast, right? Mm -hmm. And um, it's not in my nature to say no because somebody listening to it may become my next business partner. Right. So I, I think that uh, in the universe, um, we're all connected in some way. There's some good and there's some bad. But the bad will reveal itself if you let it reveal itself without hurting you too much. The good, on the other hand, will never reveal itself if you don't let it in. So um, my, my policy is accept everything and let people uh, show for themselves uh, whether they're good for you or bad for you. And then based on that, you know, make your decisions at that point. 
So I, don't, I very seldom say no to requests. The only time I say no is if I'm super busy and I just can't do it, you know, yeah. because I do have one body. But then even then I try to help by suggesting somebody else uh, or saying, hey, can we reschedule or uh, come back to me next year? I'd be willing to talk again. Okay. You know what? I do say no, I do say no to um, some people on LinkedIn uh, who are asking to connect to me. Um, I say no a lot to um, people who are in a cyber, cyber, whatever, you know, Bitcoin or blockchain or whatever, because most of them are, um, you know, next thing to mafia as far as I'm concerned. Not everyone, but uh, there's a lot of scammers in that field. Yeah, and it's a lot um, I also say no to young Chinese women who are showing too much cleavage <laughs> because I know that they're probably... Uh, trying to uh, trap uh, stupid uh, business people in the West and, and somehow infiltrate them. I don't know. But anyway, there's a, there's a lot of people out there who are scammers. So I do say no to those people. Are these, are these young Chinese women? This, this is on LinkedIn? You wouldn't believe, LinkedIn is the biggest uh, you know, mess that, that's known to mankind. The good thing about LinkedIn is at least you can control who you're looking at, unlike Facebook, which is just horrible. Uh, LinkedIn has some utility, but you really have to be careful. I've got about 13,000 connections on LinkedIn. And, yeah, recently, uh, every day I get like five or ten requests. At least half of them, I know that person is fake, even though they have 500 other people, including some of my friends, as their friends. You can just tell they're fake. What, they're living in Saudi Arabia, but they went to school and... Uh, you know, I don't know, uh, somewhere, somewhere they couldn't have met Scotland or something, uh, wherever, you know, and, and, and then you look at them and they look Chinese. That doesn't make sense. And they've got a, a German name. Yeah. You know, there might be somebody like that out there, but generally speaking, it, it's just somebody too lazy to connect all the dots. Yeah. And as soon as you accept them, one, one hour later, they're selling you something. They're inboxing you to sell you something. Uh, they want to do a loan, you know. Oh, we represent some multi-trillion dollar fund in UAE and, and you've been selected. Let's see, what have you been selected for? Will we ask you for a loan today or will we ask you to give us your bank account number or something else? You know? Yeah, yeah, always. Terry, do you, um, do you meditate? Um, I, I sort of micro meditate. Um, I actually, uh, my 15th birthday from my mother, who was a kind of a hippie, uh, was a transcendental meditation course. Mm -hmm. All I really wanted was a bicycle. <laughs> so I was kind of unhappy, 15 years old. I don't want a TM, a TM course, I want a bicycle. But anyway, I got a TM course. So um, I, I learned how to meditate. Um, but, uh, you know, over the last few years, I found myself living my meditation versus conducting meditation. And I find that works for me. So um, right now, I, no, I don't meditate. So actually, I think your mother is pretty insightful, though. I think you're looking pretty lucky because actually, it's funny you mentioned that because I'm going to start a TM course next week. I'm going to the U.S. for about 30 days, but I'm going to do a TM course in Austin, Texas for um, starting September, first week of September. So it's interesting that you that you say that. Oh, yeah, they are interesting. <clears throat> you learn a lot about the human body that you didn't know, including parts that most people never think about, like their brain. Mm, yeah. Um, 
So, you know, uh, it, it does teach you to be open-minded. Uh, and there are some things that science still can't explain. But, um, yeah, I, you know, I, I'm already at the stage where I accept whatever happens. Mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm not easily stressed or flustered or bothered. Even when I was being attacked uh, viciously online back in, uh, you know, 10 years ago, I, there was a short period, maybe about six to eight weeks, where it really bothered me. But then after that, I just thought, well, this is a big lesson, you know, big lesson from upstairs. Mm-hmm. Um, and if I don't rise to the occasion, then what am I? Uh, so I decided just to deal with it and get on with life. And uh, suddenly things started getting better. Yeah, I think that's the main thing. If you can walk away with something that you learned rather than just packing up and say, oh, I'm never doing that again. Like you said. Right. And here you right. are 10 years later with back to back to even better than you were before, most likely, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I have big plans for the future and big dreams and hopes. And they're all based on uh, lots of factors that I, you know may or may not happen, but I, I believe they will happen. All right, excellent. All right, so last question. When you feel overwhelmed or unfocused, what do you do? How do you deal with it? I'm never unfocused. Uh, I might not have anything to do. Um, if I don't have anything to do, I hang out with my family or do some sports. Um, but, you know, if I'm working, for example, I'm never unfocused because I like what I do. How can you be unfocused when you love it? Yeah, yeah. And overwhelmed, yeah, I mean, you know, uh, there's lots of things going on in the world, but I've been doing it for 36 years now. So um, I realize you can always say I'll do it tomorrow. Um, you know, once you, once you get past 50, uh, I'm a bit above 50 now. Um, once you get past 50, you stop being able to work uh, productively for 16 hours a day. Mm-hmm. And um, so I know that my most productive time is in the morning. So instead of being overwhelmed, I take care of all the pressing things, prioritize them in the morning, like I'm a little robot, right? And get the stuff out of the way. And then in the afternoon, I do all the EQ stuff. So the IQ stuff in the morning and the EQ stuff in the afternoon. That's why I asked you if we could have this interview in the afternoon. Mm. Because I know that I can reach down into my limbic system (laughs) instead of, you know, being up here in the frontal and then, um, you know, be able to uh, still function properly. Okay, excellent. And for those listeners who don't know, Terry has four daughters and a son, so he's a great family man as well as businessman as well. So, great guy. Yeah, I've been highly productive so far. <laughs> All right, Terry, so we've covered a, a wealth of information today. I really appreciate your insights and sharing, sharing your, um, your world with us. So we'll, we Great. Can, uh, my pleasure. Before we jump off, if someone wants to get in touch with you or collaborate with you, what's the best way to get in touch with you online? Um, my email is on LinkedIn. So they can go to my LinkedIn profile, Terry Lloyd, uh, spelled T-E-R-R-I-E. Uh, my mother didn't know that there was a male spelling with a Y. <laughs> so, so people still try to correct my name today, you know, because they know I'm a guy. I just say, well, you know, blame my mom. <laughs> Yeah. But anyway, um, if they go to my profile, there's an email address there. Uh, I think it's the terry at linkmedia.co.jp address. 
And um, yeah, I'll take all now. I, I don't mind anybody with anything basically can contact me. All right, great, great. All right, so again, thanks so much, Terry, and I'll be talking to you real soon. Okay, all right, great. It was uh, wonderful speaking to you as always. Likewise, likewise. All right, take care. Okay. There you have it, guys. Another episode of Dealmaker Diaries in the books. If you enjoy and or find value in what we're doing, please do leave us a nice review. It goes a long way in keeping the show moving in the right direction. For you investors, if you're looking for places to put your hard-earned capital to work, head on over to our website, g1cgrp.com, and sign up for our investor list to be informed of the different projects we're raising capital for that will provide you with the cash flow your investments so much deserves. <laughs>